for today's episode, I have a good friend of mine. Her name is Adair Burroughs, and she is running for Congress against, um, I don't know if we should say his name. That, that's on you. You want to <laughs> say it later. But um, no free plugs over here. But, yeah, so Adair, thank you for joining us today. Um, introduce yourself to the folks. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Adair. I am running for Congress here. It's the second congressional district in South Carolina, um, which includes my hometown of Williston and Burnwell County. Really small town. Grew up there in a double wide trailer. And my daddy made cabinets. My mom taught school. And um, the district includes all the way up to Columbia. Um, so it includes all the parts of five different counties here in the Midlands from Columbia down to Augusta, Georgia, and then over east to Orangeburg. Oh, wow. That's a that's a good-sized district. I was looking at the map today and seeing this weird little shape around Richland County. I was like, whew, who did that? Okay. but Yeah, the Columbia area is where it was particularly gerrymandered, um, and they went out and picked in particular houses. So Columbia is a really weird shape of the district <laughs> yeah it's weird i almost got like this this whole claw or talon effect but so there you were you were shouting out williston um yeah the my good buddy down there the mayor but um, so you were shouting yeah. out williston so like what's your background like what got you here like yeah, so from Williston, and we can shout it out, Mayor Jason Stapleton, um, who I actually went to high school with, uh, that I know you know and are friends with. He's the mayor down there now. Oh, yeah, um, all, all the mayors are my buddies. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a great place to grow up, a lot of community um, uh, there. And I got a scholarship to Furman, which is in the upstate up near Greenville, and um, was a math major and was also in the marching band. So I was like really popular as a kid, you know? <laughs> um, heel toe, heel toe. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, and so after that, I actually taught high school math um, up in Greenville County for a while. Education was and will always be my first love. Um, and it's so important um, to economic mobility and um, to a lot of things in our society. Um, so that's what I did. I got frustrated as a as a young teacher. Um, you'll notice some some level of frustration leading to life decisions <laughs> in my path, um, and ended up going to law school. Oh wow! Um, wanted well, that's a, a potential where, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a funny story about that. It happens because of Inez Tannenbaum, um, whom I know you know. She's yeah, our superintendent of education here in South Carolina. Um, and at the time that I was teaching, she was actually running for the U.S. Senate. Um, that's when um, one of the seats now, it was an open seat. And um, I had this great conversation with her where I had been trying to tell my state legislators about things that I thought as a teacher needed to happen and no one wanted to listen to me. And she said, well, you know, I found really having a law degree has helped me a lot um, at the state house with all these guys, you know, it gives them a credential that says, um, you know, she's smart, might know what she's talking about. So that's what planted the seed about law wow. school. Um, so I went off and did that um, at Stanford, um, got a lot of student debt um, in that process, but had a really fun time. Um, and 
then ended up at the Department of Justice in DC. And what really happened there was in law school, I had this incredible tax professor that I took every class he offered, was a real mentor to me and is, is still today. Um, he's, he's actually been involved in helping out my campaign a little bit. And um, he had kind of pegged these uh, big tax shelters as a real problem um, for our country. And I just kind of became morally indignant about tax shelters. And at the time I was in law school, justice was losing those cases at the trial level. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, I'm smart enough to unwind these shelters and explain it to a judge and jury. Like, we've got to go. Um, we got to fix this. And so I ended up spending my summers in law school, a summer in law school, um, at DOJ, just really camped outside of the offices of some of the senior attorneys, trying to get myself on those cases. <laughs> and um, sometimes anyway, that's the way that you got to do it. Out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I ended up going there after graduation and spent six years um, doing tax work, going after um, you know millionaires and corporations that were cheating on their taxes. Really. So then I wanted to move back to South Carolina. Um, my husband at the time, or he's still my husband. I, <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> you go, come on, Brian, come on. <laughs> Brian, he's an incredible, amazing, um, guy in all kinds of ways. He is a po policy force in his own right. At the time he was working on the Senate, um, for the Senate health education and labor and pensions committee doing some, some cool work. Well, we had a kid and, um, <laughs> DC is a little hard with a kid, as it turns out, if you don't have a network. Yeah. Um, there was this, like, really funny day. So he had a hearing. The Senate committee had a hearing the next day. And we had we would schedule daily who would pick up uh, the kid from daycare because our schedules were so crazy. And um, so it was his day to pick up Analia from daycare. And he calls me and he says, you know, I need to brief the senator more on some stuff at his hearing tomorrow. Can you please go pick up Analia? And I said, well, sweetheart, I'm in California doing depositions. So it's going to be a little hard <laughs> to make it back to pick up. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of uh, the point we found ourselves in our lives and really wanted to get back to our South Carolina community. Um, so I got a job with a federal judge down in Charleston, um, who's named Richard Gurgle. Mm -hmm. And originally that gig was going to be like a one year transitional job. I needed to take the bar exam here to practice, uh, that kind of thing. But, uh, I wasn't so good at telling a federal judge no. And I ended up staying with him for almost four years because he had some really important cases. Um, oh, yeah. while I was there, uh, you, you got uh, a big one. You got a big one. I almost want yeah, to. I almost want to want to save it and let us kind of pivot to a few other pivot, areas. Yeah, we yeah. can do that. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm going on and on now. No, no, no. Okay. And but I, I feel like it, it's good. It gives it gives the folks listening kind of a snapshot and and they seeing it in chronological order. Like, hey, this this lady went from here to here to here to here. Like, that's amazing. And it's funny how life goes. It, you know, it, it is. You know, I. I tell myself I'm going to do my best to not interject too much of my story into other people's story, but you know I understand I it. like your story, though, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, do it, and finding parallels is really cool, yeah. There, it, it is. And so, like, when you 
going way back to like the the beginning. And he was like, "Hey, I grew up in a double wide man." You know what I'm saying? And and then saying like from from Williston, where come on, you got to plug this now. You you graduated Valley Vic- Valley Victorian, like I did, I did. That, yeah, that that's huge. Come on, come on, come on. Well, I, I, I need my little I sound say... for the round of applause thing. Like, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> round of applause. So, One of the coolest things for me was our kickoff for this campaign. Um, I was determined to do it in my hometown of Williston, and we knew we were going to have three or 400 people. And so there's not a venue really big enough in Williston indoors to hold that. So we did it on the high school football field. And uh-huh. it was the same field that I stood on to give my valedictory address at graduation 20 years oh, earlier. Um, and it That's was just a, a really cool right there. Yeah, it was a very cool moment. And so many of my classmates were there. Um, that's still my favorite event in the campaign so far. It was just so meaningful for me. Wow, like, to oh, that. man. that Yeah, I, I totally understand a, a parallel to that. Um, you make me do the thing that I said I wouldn't do. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, similar, similar story. Do uh, it. Tell me. I want to know. So, but, you know, it didn't happen on the, the same field, but it was similar to some of the people. Um, me going away, doing doing my thing. I, I didn't ask NASCAR first, um, but graduated from Strong Thurman High, you know. Hey, fill in whatever joke you may have, Strong Thurman High. Go Rebels. But, um, <laughs> but it's like graduating from there. Going doing the NASCAR thing, later going to college, Orlando, doing music, and coming back to Johnston and seeing so many of my classmates, but also seeing so many of like my baseball coaches, former teachers. And when they read the paper that, hey, Terrence is gonna run for mayor. Oh my God. One of my teachers called me on she called me and she was just like, as soon as I seen your name, I was like, Y'all might was hanging up, he's gonna win. Like that that kid you ain't going to stop him. And so I get it. Like going back home, all this world travel that you have, and it just feels different when you go home and you're doing something that most people from your area, they don't even have access to people that do it, let alone some of the people that have done all the other cool stuff. Because yet again, we got to shout out Furman now. You didn't just go and walk across the stage and leave. But there, you you're a, you're a hit maker. You've been you've been winning some big awards for a long time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm I, I I'm good at standardized tests. That helped um, helped me get the money I needed to go to some of these cool places. And um, Furman definitely like it was a place where I really came into myself. Um, you know, being from Wilson, I actually applied to only two colleges: Furman and Clemson. And I applied to Furman because I had been there on like high school math competitions and for all state band. Again, we're back to my nerd popularity <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and just kind of loved it, loved it when I was on campus. So applied there, but assumed I could never afford to go. And um, I applied to Clemson because they have a scholarship where if you're at the top of your class junior year, you can get a scholarship to Clemson. Mm-hmm. So that was affordable for me. Um, and then I ended up getting a scholarship to Furman, which was amazing. Yeah. And when I went, I, um, 
like my goal was to just keep my scholarship. I really didn't know how it was going to compete in a broader world or how that would work out. Um, and so, but I really, Furman, what Furman did for me was open up what was possible. Um, while I was there, I became a Truman Scholar, which is a national scholarship program for graduate students interested in public service and leadership. Um, and they choose, you know, 50 to 70 a year nationwide. And I suddenly found myself in a cohort of people that are like, it was like, yeah, I can compete. I can compete on a national level. It, it turns out you you can have some big dreams from some small places. I'm telling you. My, my friend Stephen Brown likes to say. Um, so uh, Furman really kind of opened my eyes as to what I was, was capable of um, and what I could do and how I could compete on a larger level academically, but then how I could like gain all those skills. And I always had this dream of somehow bringing it back um, to, to be like cool for my hometown. Right. Yeah. Um, to, to kind of bridge those worlds and say, Hey, like I've gained all these skills where I can hold my own in the halls of Congress and hold my own in federal court. Um, but I'm going to be fighting for you, like the people I grew up with. Um, and it's just, it's the coolest thing in the world, man. That is, Come on, come on. See, I, I got to get my, my sound effects together. I, I need the round of applause now. Uh, <laughs> but no, that to me, that that's huge. And that kind of pivots back to what the name of this whole show is about, is culture and country. And it's like, I think when we get outside of our humble beginnings, nothing wrong with them. They, they shape us in ways that folks will never understand. But when you start tapping in and getting around people with different experiences and people that have been more places, seen more things, you start understanding like, hey, those are just people just like me. They just, they aren't smarter. They aren't better. They aren't, I mean, may have a little social economic thing there here, there, but right. <laughs> it's like, I can do it too. All you need to do is see it. Like, almost I got an uncle. He, he's a mechanic. He told me he's always been in the cars and all the thing he needed to do was see the part. He said, if I could see it, I could fix it. And I was like, as a kid, I thought that was crazy. <laughs> but the older I got, I was yeah. like, that's it. You're right. Like that level of exposure. So, yeah. So what got, I guess like we're looking now, now we could get into the, the, the meat and potatoes of it all. Like you are, running for Congress, not just running, but like making a whole lot of noise while doing it. I mean, what? Well, you, it ain't worth doing if you don't do it right. That, that's, you know right. See, that's what I'm talking about. You only learn that if you know people or have lived on a dirt road yourself. That's what you know what I'm Yep. That's it. You were like, hey, it ain't but one way to do it. That's it. I came to win. I mean, you have your Beyonce moments. You came to slay. That's so, right. Like, I remember... When I first heard your name, oh man, it was man, it was a while ago, and I think you called me too. I heard about you, then you called me, and you was like, yeah. "Terrence, a couple people told me you're somebody I need to know." And I was like, "I don't know why they tell you that because some days I don't want to know myself." But anyway, <laughs> and we <laughs> you, met. You were the guy, yeah. Yeah, it's, and I appreciate that. We met, and I gave you my two cent. And I was like, hey, if I could help, let me know. 
and I connected you, I think, with some other people. But from the time we met, I was like, I was telling all my friends, like political friends and non-political, like, hey, man, I met with this lady a dare. Man, I think she got it. Like, and my biggest thing, I was like, I think I told you, I said, if you can raise the money to compete and just put yourself on that platform, similar to your stories of college, high school, everything, put yourself in that room, put yourself on that platform. I'm like, man, child, you could you could walk away with it. And from and what I've seen, thing. you're doing it. Like, we, you know, I had all those early conversations uh, with people like you that were in this arena because I, I never run for anything before. And, um, you know, that was definitely the message I got, especially for a congressional campaign. Like, money just matters. When you have to get your message out to 700, 750,000 people, um, you just, you can knock every door every evening and Saturday. You can hold a meet and greet every day of the year for two years and you still only met 2% of the voters. Yep. And so um, at the end of the day, you just have to have the money to do things like radio and TV and um, mail. And you just have to have the resources to really get your message out there, um, especially as a first time candidate. So people know who you are. And so I wasn't going to do this unless I committed um, to raising the money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that involves a lot of hard work because you got to have a lot of conversations and, and get people um, engaged in what is possible. Um, and so so we've put in the work, you know, and we've outraised an 18 year incumbent four consecutive quarters. Uh, and like no one else is doing that, even across the country. You don't see challengers outraising an incumbent every single quarter. So I think it says a lot. I mean. It, it says a lot about the work, the hard work we've put in, but it also says a lot about what people are looking for. And I think we've reached a time in our political lives where um, people want a little freshness. And the, you know, the guy that's just sat in the seat for 20 years and waved his hand in parades isn't all that inspiring anymore. Um, so, man, you, you said a lot. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously, <laughs> you said a lot because you're right. Like, being being in this space, one, I mean, we, we can't leave out the, the most glaring. I mean, being in this state, like, we've seen it time and time again where folks get elected, stay elected, and that's kind of it. And, and I say this, you know, a little shameless plug, as an elected official myself, it, it is tough sometimes being elected, but you have to be able to reach out, reach a, one, reach, reach across lines that you never knew existed to find people to help you and get stuff done. But looking at somebody that's been in office that had more than enough opportunities to do that, it just speaks to the district. The district, you being that candidate that have woken them up to show them like, hey, you can do better. We can do better. And I think from everything you've said about your story and telling, you know, telling the courageous moments you've had, how you got there, how you had to fight, put yourself on the playing field. That's what people need. And that's what people need to hear. They need to know that, Hey, this person isn't, not to say this person isn't trying to be better than me or nothing like that. They're just a person that created opportunities for themselves and their family. And they're willing to hear my story, not just hear it, but know my story 
and can help me and my family progress and move forward. So hats off to you for doing that. And then two, raising the money. And I know a lot of people here, when people talk about raising money, they just think it's just dollars and cents, dollars and cents. No, money is the amplifier. That's how I like, I hope you don't mind me saying that. It it helps you amplify your voice because you're right. You, it will be, man, it's impossible to meet an entire district. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm the mayor of a small town. Can I say I've met everybody? Yeah, by now, yeah. But, you know, it took right. a while, right? It took a while. Mayor of a small town, and I'm from here, but it still take a while. But with with that said, though, since we're here, we have a platform to talk to people, what are some of the ideas in your travels through the district, talking to people in the district, what do you think, what's the what's the need? What's the void? Yeah, and so, like, what I really wanted to do, um, what we're really trying to do here is represent the people, like, the people I grew up with, that I went to school with. Um, and, and one of my frustrations about the way a lot of our national politics works now is on the money front. Um, because you simply have to have money to win. Um, You have to have money to get a a message out. And what is set up, especially with a a lot of incumbents that have been there a while, um, it's just easier to get that money from big corporation packs um, and some of the special interest money. And that kind of becomes who you're more beholden to in voting with. With our current congressman, that's the case. Like, even though we are out raising him because we have thousands literally like 3,000 individual donors, um, whereas his money is two-thirds like big corporate PAC money and special interest money. Mm. Um, And so it's frustrated about that money in politics. And it's one of the reasons when we launched this campaign, I committed from day one, we were not going to take any corporate PAC money. Because what we want to do here is represent the people of this district. That's where my interest is and I don't want to um, ever feel feel that pull um, to, to have relationships with kind of um, people outside of the district that might affect my ability to fully advocate for the people in my district. Um, so a lot of I went to the rural communities first because that's where I'm from and my heart is um, in Barnwell County and Orangeburg County rural communities in Aiken like um, Wagner and Batesburg, Leesville, and into to tying these communities in the number one issue, we actually did a rural roundtable early on with local elected leaders, mayors, um, city and county council people, um, and their number one issue is rural broadband, um, is what we mm. kept hearing, because we have swaths of the community here in South Carolina that have access to the internet, and this current pandemic has just yeah. exacerbated that problem. You've got kids that need to do school from home and they don't have the internet. You've got um, people that need to work from home and they don't have the internet. Small businesses um, that need to be able to take products online to keep their businesses afloat, can't do it. Um, And telehealth, you know, our rural communities have the lowest access um, to healthcare facilities and Barnwell where I'm from, their hospital closed uh, after the state didn't expand Medicaid. And there's no OBGYN in the county. You can't have a baby in that county. You got to drive. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and so things like telehealth become really important. 
And in this time of pandemic, telehealth has been really promoted. But if you don't have access to high-speed internet, you can't do a telehealth appointment with a doctor. Um, so it's really brought that to issue. So that's our number one issue. We've already done the research. I talked to a, a former FCC chairman. We've worked through the mechanics at the Department of Agriculture, and we're working with an organization to actually map what infrastructure we do and don't have. So on day one, we can tackle that. You know, I like to do my homework and be prepared and like get stuff done. Um, so that has been kind of the number one issue we've heard from our rural communities. Across the district in both rural and urban, it's hands down cost of healthcare. It's mm. just too expensive. Um, and we're seeing that um, play out in this pandemic. I think we're seeing long-term inequities in healthcare play out in um, the people that are suffering most from the pandemic and, and death rates. You know, we have a, more than half of the people in South Carolina dying from COVID-19 are African-American. Um, and, and they're 27% of the population. Like that's not okay. And when we look at how we got here, we've got some really underlying health disparities we need to be talking about. And a lot of that is access to care, which comes back to affordability. Mm. And so I have a friend of mine from high school who has an autoimmune disease and her prescription drug bill is $6,000 a month. Oh my goodness. Every single month. And she clearly can't afford that every single month. Um, she is Six. in yes, $6,000. Every single month she is like working with her insurance company, trying to get them to pay for another month of, of drugs that she needs. And, and that's a fight every month. And, and sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And it's just ridiculous. And so uh, I'm very interested in working. I think people need to, they just need to be able to afford healthcare. That's it. Yeah. And the stories are, are boundless. You know, my dad um, injured his shoulder. I didn't know it until nine months later. He's gone nine months and hasn't had surgery he needs because he can't afford the deductible. And look, these people are insured. He's got insurance. Yeah. Um, but, but he still can't afford the deductible. It's ridiculous. Um, so we have to be able to tackle that problem. Um, and like, so we have some proposals on that, like allowing Medicare to negotiate drug costs. That uh, that was true until 2003. Congress passed a law that said they could not negotiate. Um, and when you can't negotiate price, they go up. Shocker. Exactly. Um, that becomes a monopoly at that point. Yep. Um, and so there's some proposals like that that we think can help bring down the cost. Um, but we just got to do that. And I think one of the things sometimes that have gotten lost in the political debates on health care is it's not just about insurance. Um, people with it, the, the insurance is a problem. We want as many people insured as we can. But it's also just about affordability for people that do have insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's shocking to me how many people have insurance but are still not getting health care that they need. Um, because it's too expensive. So I feel like that's kind of our big issue of our day that our leaders are going to have to figure out how to tackle. Man, you, yikes. I'm, I'm still stuck on $6,000 every 30 days. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean. That's ridiculous. It, it, it is ridiculous. And the amount, like, that you get charged for insulin, we, you know, we all know the stories about people rationally rationing insulin mm -hmm. um, and it leading, in some cases, death. 
And there's, um, so it was December of 2018 when I was thinking about running and trying to decide if I was going to run. Um, that was really the month of homework and decision-making. And one of the things that was so, so salient for me during that time was a friend of mine who said, um, hey, Adair, my husband and I have decided we can't have kids until my mom passes because I can't afford to pay her prescription drug bill and daycare at the same time. It's just, I can't afford it. Oh my God. And like, just the thought that people, people are making decisions to not have kids until their parents pass. And then they're making this decision where kids don't never get to know their grandparents um, all because the cost of health care is so ridiculously high. Like, that's not the world I want to live in. Um, and and um, it was one of the moments where I was like, I think we, I've got to do this. <laughs> Somebody's got to do something. Yeah. Somebody got to speak up for those people because I, I get it. A lot of times, you know, the powers that be, they're so far removed that, they're not having those conversations. They're not hearing those stories. And, you know, needless to say, some may be hearing those stories and having those conversations, but they aren't the pressing issue. They they aren't the people that are funding the re-election. So it goes unchecked and unnoticed. So, wow. I think that's right. And, you know, so many members of Congress um, at this point are millionaires. And I think that the longer, you know, the longer they're in office and the longer they're in D.C., in a lot of instances, you see people, they've just um, lost their proximity to, to real everyday people. Um, mm-hmm. And and because money is such a big factor in running, um there's we often see wealthy people in office and they just maybe don't have that perspective and that that i mean like again like that's my goal in this i want to bring this perspective from the people i grew up with um to the table i want them to have a representative uh so no 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 we're gonna do it i love it i love it and so looking at your district um you know I me. Mean? I, I was sitting here trying to do do a little research, make sure I'm, I'm taking my job seriously. <laughs> so, in doing doing a little research about the second, I was like, I, I thought I thought this before I ever looked, but I was like, there has been no no woman that was elected, like straight out elected, to represent that district. There are two women in history that served unexpired terms of their husbands. Um, okay. Wilma, what, Fulmer, and, uh-oh, Corrine, what, Riley, yeah. So, yeah. how do you feel, like, I know it probably adds a lot of pressure to you, um, how do you feel to potentially be the first woman to represent that district? Um, it's 2020, it's about that gum time, <laughs> and it, <laughs> it's, it's, and it's not just the district. So, um, if except for women that replaced their husbands mm-hmm. when their husbands died, um, if, if you look at who was elected to office, elected to the United States Congress from South Carolina statewide, yeah. Um, if you're not talking about women replacing their husbands for unexpired terms, there's one woman that we have ever sent to Congress yeah. named Liz Patterson. Is that one. right? 
And yeah. we haven't sent a woman to Congress in 30 years. That's statewide, right? Yeah. But we've never done it from the district. And um, it, it is frustrating because I think having those voices at the table matters, right? It, it, it matters. We have studies on this in areas of business. We have it on it in areas of things like jewelry and civil service. Um, having different perspectives make us make better decisions. Um, if we are sitting in a room with people that all look like us, we are more arrogant and we are more wrong. <laughs> exactly. if, we are, if we're sitting in a room where people um, look different and come from different places, um, it makes us a little less arrogant and makes us focus on facts more. Um, and it makes us um, become a little bit more sure before we start spouting off opinions. And so, you know, just just having a woman in a room, just having a person of color in a room, like, it matters. And so, um, you know, I, it, it, is, it is weird for me to think it's 2020 and this district's never had a woman, like not once. Yeah. Um, and I have two little girls. And we've had um, so many conversations. We, you know, we, we have this kid's book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and a um, Southern women coloring book about some Southern women leaders. And we've had a lot of conversations lately since we've been at home and reading lots of books together in this time of isolation. <laughs> um, but we've had a lot of conversations about how many women have been on the Supreme Court and both of my daughters were shocked that we've never had a woman president ever. They're like, never, never. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out like we haven't had a woman um, go to Congress from this seat except to replace her husband. And it, you know, it's something that's hard for my daughters to wrap their head around, but I don't want that to be their story or what they know. Right. Um, so. No, no, no. I, I think I, it matters. Yeah. It, I, I think it matters, matters greatly because when I when I seen it, I was more shocked that it has ever happened. You know, like I was like, wow, like why do I even why do I feel that way? But then it made you, you know, it makes you think, like, in South Carolina. So we get it. We know what most politicians look like in South Carolina. But so in looking at your overall story, right? So from like you you were saying from way back when in Williston to college at Furman um, and to the things that you've done in your career over all this time into now, like pivoting into you running for Congress and doing a hell of a job at doing it. What would you say? I know you know this, this is the big question, right? What is like a proudest moment? Um, I mean, it could be, it could be whatever. It doesn't have to be political. I know me being political, you being political. <laughs> most of our answers get kind of thrown through that lens. And I, I don't want that. I don't want it to become that with, like, what we do here. Um, but just thinking about it, going back to, like I said, the name of the show, Cultured in Country. And I, I want everybody to get that vibe of, like, it's like a cookout. You invited to the cookout. So what's, yep. the, what's, the, proud, what's the proud moment? Um. There's several. I, I have to say, um, in the in the in the gig I had before this one, before I was running, uh, a friend of mine and I had launched a nonprofit that provides affordable legal services for like normal people, <laughs> people that don't qualify for free legal aid but can't afford a private attorney. 
So most people don't know this, um, but free legal aid, the cap on that um, for like a single person is basically $15,000 a year. Um, it goes up for different family sizes, but you make twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, you don't qualify for free aid. Well, you well, also can't drop yeah. You also can't drop five or eight thousand dollars for a legal retainer. Um, so there's this huge gap in being able to access a lawyer between free legal aid and the private market. And so we were the first, we were a nonprofit, but we were the first firm in the state and really in the deep south that was to target um, availability of services for that group. Um, and so we do reduce rate services. So instead of paying a lawyer 250 bucks an hour, you might pay a lawyer 50 bucks an hour. Um, oh, wow. But our rates are determined based on people's income and ability to pay. So our clients are paying something, but it's something affordable to them. Um, so anyway, that has been a great passion project. Um, and a lot of hard work. Uh, <laughs> and one of one of the funny stories about trying to like decide about running for office was uh, that organization is four years old. And in December of 2018, when we we're talking about this, like I, I was going, my my salary in this nonprofit was less. My take home was less than my student loan payments. Um, but I had like just secured. Um, three-year funding for the first time. I was going to make a real living wage in January of 2019. Like things were going really well. And then um, leaving that organization at that point in time was just um, really the hardest decision about running. And because I have so many proud moments um, as a lawyer in that organization, like, I, you know, my favorite thing was stepping into situations where people were just, they were frankly used to being screwed. Um, and it being being a lawyer representing clients, it, it like really taught me um, just how many different ways there are um, to to screw and scam people out there if nice. you don't have um, have any power. And so, like, there's this one guy, one of our very first clients, um, lost everything in an apartment fire. It was caused by the apartment management company. They refused to submit an insurance claim on his behalf. Now, they had insurance. It was a covered issue. They could submit a claim and help replace his belongings, uh, but they refused to do it because they didn't want insurance premiums to go up. And they literally said to the guy, what are you going to do about it? Dang. Oh, my What God. are you going to do about it? Because he, you know, he was making nine twenty-five an hour. He couldn't go and hire a lawyer to help. Yeah, him he, with this. he couldn't. He, he didn't have the funds for retainer or, or nothing. Right, and he lost everything he owned. All he had just the clothes on his back. He lost all of his his furniture, his clothes, literally every possession. And and that just shows us there's often this power dynamic in 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 these situations. And as soon as someone that was a lawyer called. They submitted the insurance claim. Oh my God. Right. And so, and so it wasn't about even who was legally right. They knew it was just about the power to do something about it. And so like my proudest moments is being able to like look at a family and say, like, I know, <laughs> I know you're, you're used to being on the short end of the stick in the seal, but it's not going down like that today. Not today. Mm. Today it's going to be different. 
because um, you got an advocate here that that understands the system. And um, so I really loved that work. And part of my decision is running is being able to bring that same sort of thing here to people. When people call our office for help and need help with constituent services, and I will be a congresswoman, and a certain amount of power comes with that, just like it does with being an attorney and being able to pick up the phone and saying, this is Congresswoman Burroughs. We need to talk. <laughs> you need to, you know. Um, and, and, I know the and, feeling, a little bit. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, those are the moments that I live for, is is to be able to to use some of those, the skills and, um, frankly, social power that comes with, with education and, and these sort of roles um, to really get some things done for some people that are often lacking in that level of societal power. Wow. Um, that... It's very... It gets me up in the morning, man. <laughs> no, nah, I get it. And it, it it should, you know, just having the, the energy or, like I like to say, having the juice to go out here and make a difference. Uh, a lot of people have it, don't use it, or they pretend that they don't understand the full magnitude of what that means or what what their authority holds. And it's beautiful, man. That's pretty good. I'm sitting here thinking, like, yeah, we, we may, I may need to connect you with some people that I know that need, <laughs> that need some some real, you know, it's on you. I don't know if you want to plug plug that company, even though you're no longer there. So people listening. Oh, um, sure, yeah, it's a nonprofit. It's called Charleston Legal Access, so it's based down in Charleston. That's where we started it. Um, I'm really hoping it's going to be a statewide organization because it's really important. A lot of the work that we've done and what we focused on is helping um, modest and low-income communities preserve wealth. And wow. it's so frustrating that we could prevent falls into poverty with just access to an attorney, um, where people are, are wrongly losing houses, cars that they need to get to work. Um, income streams, and we can kind of step in at those critical moments and preserve wealth in these communities so that they don't fall into um, the social social safety nets um, that I'm glad we have. But, but by providing attorney at these moments, we can kind of prevent that fall into poverty. And um, it's a really great organization. No, I, I think that truly is, is amazing because you, you hit it right on the head when you was like, help communities preserve wealth because most people or families are one misstep. I don't even want to say catastrophic thing from happening to just disrupting their whole lives. And yeah. the bounce back to recovery is way longer than most people think. So I, I, I kudos to that and kudos to you guys for like starting that to even, you know, being bold enough to go out and say, Hey, we're going to help people and we're going to help people that, Truly can't afford us, but let's help them. Um, yeah. It makes me think. Let's like, endure. The thing is, we, and I have to give a shout out here to my friend, Sally Newman, who. Um, Go Sally. She, she's just a light of the world. And she very, very tragically um, passed this past year um, at 32 from cancer, which is awful. But she, like, this was her brainchild. And she and I had worked together at the, the federal court. And we had talked about this gap for so long. And one day she just comes into my office and she's like, Adair, let's just do it. 
like do what sally (laughs) let's represent people like our daddies let's like let's just do it and i don't know that i would have had um the courage to do it by myself um because that's a big undertaking to start with no money um literally nothing and just try and like open this organization and grow it and um like it is definitely a huge legacy to the impact um, she's had on this world and uh, so it's yeah, check it out. It's amazing. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely. All right. So with that said, we are we're coming close to the end. And you like me, you know us as uh politicians, we have to be brief or learn to be brief or the best way we can. <laughs> so in wrapping this up, I have this this question. I've kind of toiled over this, kind of make the question kind of fit the theme, but also make it funny make it interesting so here's my question right oh i'm i'm so i'm so excited all right so as a cultured and country alumni now that you've done the show you're an alumni that means you're invited to the cookout i love it all right here's the question two parts what dish would you bring to said cookout and also what dish would you leave with on your covered plate like we like to say down south I love it. Um, what would I bring? Macaroni pie. Not macaroni and cheese, macaroni pie. Okay. Making the oven. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay. Not this creamy Velveeta stuff. <laughs> oh, I got you. <laughs> the casserole dish in the oven. Um, that was always one of my favorite dish growing up, and it's still one I always um, bring when I can. If somebody else is, grab it first. Um <laughs> And one of my favorite meals is macaroni pie and collards. Like, that's it. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, you going to put hot sauce on the collards or no? Um, I mean, I put malt vinegar. Oh. I haven't done hot sauce. But Ooh. Oh, you country for real. <laughs> yeah. Malt vinegar on fried chicken. Oh, okay, okay. I like yeah, it. You know, there's this little um, restaurant in Blackville, South Carolina, um, run by um, a Mennonite family, and he's the one that first introduced me to malt vinegar on fried chicken. Change your life. <laughs> malt vinegar on fried chicken. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Right. I put I put a little malt vinegar on, on my collars and stuff too, though. Okay, so, um, so macaroni pie is what you're bringing. I'm taking collars away because I can't cook them. I'm ah. trying. It's not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the the bring in is macaroni pie. The takeaway is collards with malt vinegar. That's right. Well, Adair, this has been fun. I really enjoyed it, and definitely thank you for you know putting putting a little trust in me as I venture off into this whole new space. But I think it's fun. I like it, and I it's definitely want to continue. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, so many times when you talk about stuff, and when you start doing things and putting your name out there on things. People only want to talk to you about one thing. And I always say they don't want to take the time to get to know who you are. So I feel like this is an opportunity and a platform, not just yourself, but others. Hey, let's talk about, let's be a little selfish. Talk about you for a moment, right? So <laughs> yeah. I really and appreciate it. Let me, let, me, let me be a politician for just a second. Oh, go for it. Website. You got to, yeah, yeah, plug the website. Website, adareforcongress.com. It's A-D-A-I-R, my first name, adareforcongress, spelled out, dot com. Um, check out the campaign, man. We're excited about how things are going. 
Man, I'm excited too. Please tell Brian and the girls I said hello. Um, I know you guys are practicing social distancing. And for everyone listening, that's why Adair's not here live. I called her up on the phone. So if it sounds a little tweaky, it's a phone. But there you go. Thank you again. Peace, love, and I'll see you later. Thank you, Terrence. All right. Bye, Adair.